I often ask myself, what do we as Christians have that is so good that it's a shame that the world has to live without it? The answer, I believe, is the good news about Jesus, and that is worth sharing. This is Adam Hill, minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ, and I pray that today's message shares that good news and that you are richly blessed by it. Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder, and the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. These are those who hadn't defiled themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and to the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to glorify you. We thank you even more for the opportunity you're going to give us outside of this building to bear faithful testimony to you. To be people who are, 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 are your witnesses in this world. To be people that bear your name. That every thought is taken captive, that every action brings you glory. God, that we live in the presence of you, your angels, and all of heaven in every moment. God, may we not defile ourselves, but may we be pure. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your righteousness, not ours. Ours is filthy rags compared to yours. God, let us live from the grace that you have given us to be your faithful witnesses. Speak today, Father, for your children are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so I want to start off with a basic principle. The world is not the way it should be. All right? That's, that's the given place. The world is not the way it should be. Genesis 1 tells us something. It tells us God made the world. Genesis 2 and 3, all right, thank you. Genesis 2 and 3 tell us that the world is not the way God made it. It's no longer the way God made it. Things have gone wrong. Things have happened that have made the world different than the way it was supposed to be. So, the world is not the way God made it, and that's the reality we live in. We live in a world where chaos is reigning, and those who are faithful often suffer unfairly. And we look around and we say things like, why is the world like this? Why is this so hard? Why is life difficult? Shouldn't it be better for those of us that are faithful? Shouldn't there be some kind of hope that this world can be a just place? And so everything cries out to God for salvation and justice. As a matter of fact, Romans 8 says that all of creation is crying out to God. 
What we have seen is that Revelation offers a vision of divine action that provides comfort to the oppressed. Are we getting it that? Not yet. All right. That provides comfort to the oppressed, but also provides a warning to those who have compromised their faith with the kingdom of the world. Okay, so on the one hand, what we're seeing in Revelation is um, we're seeing a warning to those who have compromised, to those who have, who have given in and, and decided to go with the world. And we're seeing at the same time a comfort given to the people of God who have been faithful. And the same vision is providing both a comfort and a warning. And these visions, especially those that are going to make up the rest of the book of Revelation as we go through it, um, these visions, nothing? All right, I'm going to give up on it. Thank you. It's my fault. I didn't check it this morning. That's on me. These visions, especially what we're going to see for the rest of our time in Revelation, in chapters 14 through 20, um, they are going to provide this sort of hope by assuring us that God will be victorious over evil and is going to make things right again. Okay, that's the message that we're going to get from these visions that make up the rest of this book. But I want to be clear about this. Chapters 14 through 20 are not a blueprint of literal history that's going to precede the end of days. All right, what we have in these visions is a symbolic glimpse into often the same event over and over and over that are designed to provide believers with this assurance. God is just and God's justice will, be reign, will reign. God is just and God's justice will reign. That, that, that's the message that we're going to see presented over and over. And that promise you need to know is eschatological in nature. Now that's a big 50 cent word, eschatological. Got to do a graduate degree in order to learn that word usually. I'm giving it to you for free. You don't have to pay any tuition costs, but if you want to throw a little extra in the plate for learning eschatological, I'm not going to stop you. <clears throat> Eschatological means that it has to do with the end times. Okay, it has to do with the end. It's what comes at the end, the last things. And what I mean by that is that God's promise of justice is eschatological in nature. What that means is it includes the future. See, all too often when we're complaining, what we do is we say, I'm looking at the injustice in the world. I'm looking at what God has done, the past, and what God is or is not doing, in my opinion, the present, and saying what gives. But what did I leave out? What God will do, the future. And the promise of God's justice is eschatological and that it's not simply that there's a mess and I can see what God has done and what God is or is not doing and then get upset. Remember that we worship the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is yet to come. Okay, so God's justice has all of this in, in, in play. And today we're finishing up this interlude that we've been in. Okay, we've started the three sets of seven, if you remember. There were seven seals. Okay, and after the seven seals, there were seven trumpets. 
And after the seven trumpets, there's going to be seven bowls. And I know some of y'all are really excited about getting to the bowls of God's wrath. You're like, preacher, please. I need more of those bowls of wrath in my life. Can you just get there? I'm, I'm, I'm dying over here, just waiting to hear more about the bowls of wrath. I know that's where you're at. We'll get there soon. But today we're going to finish the interlude that's come between these two things. These, the second set of seven and the third set of seven. Okay, and it's a really important interlude. As a matter of fact, I told you it's why I kind of wanted to do the series. Um, and, and, and when we finished the seventh trumpet blast, remember there was 30 minutes of silence in heaven? And then this interlude begins. And in the interlude, we've seen that there's a cosmic battle fought in heaven and on earth. And over the last two weeks, we've seen that there's a dragon who's at war with God and his people. And the dragon is served by two beasts. And those beasts are political power and false religion that work to distract us from worshiping the true king. And this interlude has assured us, if it's assured us of anything, it's assured us of this. We're in a war. We're in a war. Now, the war metaphor that Revelation is using is not meant to convince you to militarize Christianity. I want to be clear about that. But the war metaphor, you see, we don't wage war with the weapons that this world uses. Okay? When we talk about the dragon, the dragon fights with imperial domination. The dragon fights with, with economic control. The dragon fights with religious and cultural seduction. But the weapons of the one who is on the throne are a slaughtered lamb and the faithful witness of those who follow him. You see, in this war, there are two armies. There's the army of the dragon and there's the army of the king. And the dragon has a beast and gives people a mark. And the king has a lamb, who's also a lion, but is a lamb. And the lamb gives people a mark. The king's army that we read is 144,000. If you remember, that's that number from Revelation chapter 4 and 5 where we saw one glimpse of where he hears that there's 144,000 in the king's army and then he sees them in the next vision and what he heard was 144,000 but what he sees is the great innumerable host of God's people. So this 144,000 is all of God's people. And the truth is that this interlude has, has served to expose everyone. You see, here's the deal. In this battle, you don't get to be neutral. None of us gets to be Switzerland. You, as, as Greg put it last week, everyone has a mark. You either bear the mark of the beast or the mark of the lamb. You are either on the side of the lamb or on the side of the dragon. And so the big question that I have for you today is whose side are you on? You see, in chapter 14, what we see is three angels. And there's going to be three angels, and each one is going to have a pronouncement. And it's going to build on the one that came before. Now, some interpreters see these announcements as escalating in severity. I want to be clear about this. 
they are right. But then they conclude that these announcements are bad news. And I want to be clear about this. There, they are wrong. The announcements are going to increase in severity, but these announcements are absolutely 100% drenched with gospel. That this is good news. And so I want to look at these. I want to look at these three announcements. The first one is in verses 6 and 7. So if you have your Bible or you want to follow on the screen, Revelation 14, 6 and 7. I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The hour of judgment has come. Is that good news? All right, very good. It depends on what side you're on. Because if you're one of the oppressed people who are faithful but feel like this world is unjust, to hear that God's judgment and the hour of his judgment has come, you say, finally. If you're one of the saints that's under the altar saying, God, how long? And then you hear that the hour of God's judgment has come, you say, finally. If you're one of the enemies of God... And you hear that the hour of God's judgment has come. You say, uh-oh. Okay, th this is not completely bad news. As a matter of fact, did you notice that the, it says the first angel has the eternal gospel that is to be proclaimed? Okay, look at verse 6 again. He has the eternal gospel that is to be proclaimed to those who live on the earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. He's carrying that with him. And he says, the hour of judgment has come. You see, some have read this description and considered the angel to be an evangelist. I don't really think that's exactly what John is communicating. Here's what I think. You see, for John and for Jesus, the angels are not evangelists. Rather, the church is the herald of the coming of God's kingdom. Okay, our job on earth is to point people to Jesus and the reign of God. Okay, what this angel is meant to do, this angel does not replace the church. This angel is meant to tell us and promise us and comfort us because it represents that there is divine help as we live out the call to evangelism. That as we point to Jesus, God is helping there is a divine helper that is enabling the church to be more and more effective. You see, we are Rochester Church. Loving our neighbor is what we do. Loving God is why we do it. Y'all remember that? Good, because this is the mission. All right, this, this is, if you, what is your church like? What does your church do? What, who, tell me about your church. Loving our neighbor is what we do. Loving God is why we do it. Okay, that's, that, that's who we are. That's our identity. We've put as our identity something that is fundamentally the sharing of the good news, something that is fundamentally other-centered and sharing the gospel, something that is fundamentally evangelistic. And we take great comfort 
that God has promised to be with us. You see, here's the deal. Christians should never be bored. Right? Christians should never be bored. They should never say there's just nothing to do. There's lots to do. You could be, I don't know, meeting one of your neighbors and loving them. You could be, I don't know, participating in something going on at the school next door. You could be, I don't know, helping someone that you know needs help or love or encouragement. You could just be being kind because. Christians should never be bored when we take seriously our place in the church, in God's people. We start to realize the kind of panic that we can cause in, in Satan the kind of panic that we can induce among the demonic legions when we actively love our neighbors. Hell doesn't get too worried about Christians that are bored. But when we actively live out the call that we've been given to herald the kingdom of God by loving the people around us the way that God loves them, when we share the gospel actively, that's when they start to take notice and they start to say, oh no, this guy's going to be a problem. This lady's going to be a problem. And I want you to be a problem for hell. Whose side are you on? Verse 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. All right, because of time, I'm going to be really quick here, and I'm going to skip a lot of the, lot of the legwork. Babylon is code for Rome. Because just like Babylon, Rome was arrogant and oppressive and antagonistic toward the people of God, hence the symbolic comparison. In the same way, it's more than Rome. We talked about this last week. It can refer to any rule, any government that tries to assert itself outside of God's sovereign rule and authority. Now Babylon militarily destroyed Jerusalem and carried the people of God into exile in 586 BCE. But in the books of Jeremiah and Daniel, we found out that when they went to the land where they were in exile, it was actually a place where God said they could flourish. That the people of God could flourish in exile. The weapon that Babylon then used to keep this from happening was not more military. It was to entice the people of God to compromise to blend in and fit in where they were. See, to, to compromise their worship, to compromise their values, to compromise their faith so that they became domesticated and safe. This announcement, by the way, from this angel is wild. The first one was, the hour of judgment's come. The second one is, Babylon has fallen. To say that Babylon has fallen, if Babylon is Rome, what are you actually saying? Good, you're with, four of you are with me. <laughs> Rome has fallen. 
Here's the problem. In the 90s or whenever this was written, I think it happens to be around 95, 96. In 95, 96 AD, no one thinks that Rome has fallen. Rome is doing just fine. And so by all outward standards, you wouldn't look at it and say, yeah, they're going down soon. It's going to be another couple hundred years before Rome really starts to have some problems as an empire. So what's going on? Well, what the angel says is that they've made the nations drink the maddening wine of their adulteries. What the angel is saying is it's pointing out how the intoxication of Rome and her adulteries, her sexual immorality, her coercive power, her, her view of sin as acceptable, their compromise with depravity signals the end of their empire. You see, here's the deal. The devil is destructive and corrosive. Right? That sin causes death. The devil is destructive and coercive, even to his own people. And so Rome, under the power of the dragon, is not going to survive what the dragon is doing to it. Okay, the devil's corruption and corrosion eats away even at the devil's own people. Whose side are you on? Third angel, third announcement. Verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. They'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There'll be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or patient, or, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Okay, so the first message was the hour of God's judgment has come. The second message uh, was fallen is Babylon the great. The third message is anyone who belongs to the beast will drink the wine of God's fury. So choosing to align yourself with the beast is to set yourself up to receive the cup of God's wrath at full strength. Now I drink decaf coffee <laughs> because I already have enough energy, wouldn't you say? <clears throat> but in the ancient world, here's what's happening. Full strength. Most people don't, didn't in the ancient world drink wine at full strength. They cut wine, two parts wine to one part water. All right, that, that was the general rule. He's saying, okay, you're going to get to drink God's cup of wrath at full strength. That God's not going to cut this at all. Okay, and the images of torment are not, they're not meant to draw you a map of hell and damnation. However, it is certainly meant to scare you from being on the wrong side of this conflict. Scripture, here, here's what I know about this. Because this passage, people have read this and they've drawn a lot of conclusions about uh, damnation and the afterlife. Here's what I know. Scripture affirms this. God's discipline comes from God's love. Because God loves you, God will discipline you. 
All right? Second, rejection of God and God's kingdom is the destruction of God's plan for human flourishing, for shalom, for righteousness. And it is right that God would discipline those who oppose God. And third, within Scripture, God's wrath is giving people what they want, usually. Okay, John 3.19 says that the light came into the darkness, but the people preferred the darkness. And so God says, okay, not what I want, but what you want. Romans 1.28 says that they, they rebelled against God and they were so rebellious that they, they, they sought their own way and that God, it says, turned them over to their desires. That very often the wrath of God is to simply give you what you want. God's wrath is a real thing. And it is meant to be terrifying. And the consequences of God's wrath are more shocking than you can fathom. Follow me here. And not just in the future. God's wrath is real. It is meant to be terrifying. The consequences of it are shocking and not just in the future, but here and now. And I love you enough to tell you that you don't have to remain under the wrath of God. That the purpose of God's discipline has not been to destroy you. but to call you, to get your attention. We join with this angel by graciously and compassionately telling the truth about sin and not capitulating to this culture. But I need you to hear me. God does not want to punish this earth. God wants to save it. And so when God pours out his discipline, when God gives us what we think we want instead of what God wants for us, it's not so that we die. It's so that the truth is told about our own desires. The truth is told about our own weakness. The truth is told about our own sufficiency. So that we come to a knowledge of him. This, this calls for endurance and patience. This is why it calls for endurance and patience. Not because God's going to crush the world. And we're going to finally be like, woohoo, we're okay. We were on the right side. This calls for patience and endurance. Because our will is God's will. And God's will is that none would perish, but that all would come to a knowledge of him. First Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. Patience and endurance because you and I should never be bored. Because God so loved this world that he didn't want it to live in his wrath. And so that you and I have good news to share. I got to hurry up. I'm getting excited. It's because I don't have the other mic. <laughs> I've told you. Okay, so whose side are you on? I've told you about the three angels. Really quickly, I want to tell you about two harvests. And then I'll be done. 
Okay? We've talked about three angels and their messages. Now we're going to talk about the two harvests that are in Revelation 14. The first one's going to be in verses 14 and following. It says, I look, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. He said, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on, the, seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Now I'm going to be really quick because I don't have time, but here you go. This is Jesus harvesting the whole earth of those who would believe. All right? That's what I believe and interpret this passage to be, that this is Jesus who is wearing the crown, who has the sickle. He's the son of man, and he is pulling out from earth. He's harvesting all of the wheat on the earth. He's harvesting all of those who would believe. Now pay attention, when does this happen? I've already told you that I don't believe this is a roadmap necessarily of the future, but when does this happen? When are we talking about? He says, the angel tells him, I want you to harvest because what? It's time, but in particular, the fields are ripe to harvest. So when did Jesus say the fields were ripe to harvest? Now, while he was alive. He's, he, as a matter of fact, said, the fields are ripe to harvest. My problem is I don't have enough workers. But it's not that the fields aren't ripe. The fields are ripe to harvest. So, in other words, this isn't what's going to happen. This has already happened. This is happening now. That Christ is calling out of this earth those who are his. And the question is now, are we going to be a part of the work as it continues? Once again, whose side are you on? Now, the second harvest, and this is, this is where I'm going to spend most of the rest of my time. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar. So there's two angels. One has a sickle, and one of them is in charge of the fire. Okay, this would be the fire kept at the altar. This would be the, the fire in the temple of heaven came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. All right. So we started out and we have these two angels that are not Jesus. These two angels, one of them has a sickle, one of them has fire from the altar of, for the temple in heaven. And the angel with the sickle is told to harvest the grapes from the vines of the earth. There are five other places that the vines of the earth are mentioned in Scripture. Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, and Ezekiel 15 in the Old Testament all refer to God's people that God has planted on earth. In John 15, Jesus himself says, I am the true vine, and you're the branches. Okay, so when, when, when Scripture talks about the vines on this earth... 
It's talking about the people of God. Now that's important because when I read it, it sounded like bad things. Harvest the grapes, throw them into the wine press of his wrath, blood forever. That was my version. But here he's saying the vines of the earth, everywhere else in scripture, the vines of the earth are presented as the people of God. So in Revelation 14, we have to ask, does this mean anything other than the people who are faithful to God? Okay, hold that thought. It then says that the grapes were harvested and then thrown into the great winepress of God's wrath. And they were trampled in the winepress that is outside the city. In the Old Testament, being outside the camp or outside the city usually connoted being among wild animals, being unclean, or being sick. It was a pretty bad thing to be outside the city. But when Jesus is being crucified, he's charged to carry his cross to Golgotha, which was located outside the city. The book of Hebrews even calls us Christians to go and join him outside the city. Okay, so the cross where Jesus was crucified and bled for our sins was outside the city. The wine press of God's wrath is outside the city. The wine press of God's wrath is where the faithful one of God has been harvested and crushed so that the blood flows out of the press rising as high as four feet for 200 miles. That's a lot of blood. Revelation 14, 17 to 20 is not about God scourging the wicked. It's about God saving them. The harvest in Revelation 14, 17 to 20 is Jesus on the cross. Absorbing the wrath of God. So that his blood can cover everyone and everything. There's so much blood. There's enough blood to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And in the blood of Jesus, you're set free and made clean and saved forever. And from the cross, Jesus declares, I have you. You are mine. You have not outpaced my forgiveness or outrun my love. You have not outsinned my grace. Amen. That the harvest of God is gospel-saturated good news. That we're getting two glimpses where God calls his people out and then where God has called his faithful child, his only begotten son, and said, I love you so much that he's going to experience so that you don't have to. Can you go ahead and bring your team up? When I think about this second harvest, in, 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 in some ways... Obviously, there's the warning of God's wrath, and that should be terrifying. But, but the promise of the harving, the promise of the harvest that we see in 17 through 20, that we see that Jesus is harvested for us, when we see that, it shouldn't be terrifying for the faithful. It should be worship-inducing. 
because the wine press of God's wrath is not for us. Jesus has already set us free from that and has given us life. Whose side are you on? This passage is a gospel invitation begging you to realize that even if you've been compromised, even if you've been in league with the beast, it's not too late. Repent now and come to the way of the Lamb. Church, I want you to know this. To be indifferent is to be in league with the dragon. And so I want to invite you, come to the Lamb and live. Be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Be baptized into Christ and, and made one with God's people. Receiving the gift that comes from the cleansing blood of Christ. There is healing blood enough for all of us. A quick confession here. Truth be told, as I preach, I'm often preaching at myself. I'm saying what I need to be reminded of. Thankfully, my struggles and questions are not just mine. It turns out that being human brings some pretty universal challenges to all of us. I am so thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ. It has never let me down. I pray that today's message blessed you with the good news. Remember, you are loved and chosen.